Two minutes past the hour of six o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley, and uh, I just had a heart-stopping moment when my computer froze when I was getting ready to call in. But it's all good now, and I'm glad you're with us on this Wednesday evening. Kind of windy, sort of strange weather pattern that we're experiencing right now. Sunny outside, but it's kind of windy and a little bit chilly. But enough with the weather. We got a lot of show for you this evening, and let's start out with a very interesting story out of the city of angels. That would be Los Angeles, second largest city in the country. And uh, as happens all too often lately, it looks like Los Angeles has jumped ahead of New York. The city council in Los Angeles voted yesterday to increase its minimum wage from $9 an hour to $15 an hour in 2020. This is uh, a victory, I think, for... A lot of groups that have been pushing for it, including fast food workers who have been demonstrating across the country. What's interesting about this is that almost 50 percent of Los Angeles's workforce earns less than $15 an hour. That's right. Half the city. Now, I don't know if it'll still be half the city by the time this goes into full effect, which is now uh, five years uh, hence. But. It's interesting to contemplate that 50% of the city will, in fact, get a wage increase. And in some cases, a substantial wage increase if you start looking at it from the perspective of the current minimum wage in Los Angeles, which is 9 bucks an hour. Uh, I consider this to be a victory. I have always felt that people who oppose this, including many employers across the country, um, all say that it's going to mean a loss of jobs, it's going to mean this, it's going to mean that. Trying to convince uh, low-wage workers or lower-wage workers that it's not in their interest to get a raise, which, of course, is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Um, It's not like you're going to see fast food restaurants vacate the city of Los Angeles, although some people might argue that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but these fast food restaurants are going to continue to exist. They're going to continue on selling you the products uh, and the food that you eat in these places. And it's not just fast food restaurants. There are retailers and others. You may have seen some of the ads from Walmart lately touting the fact that they increased their minimum wage for their workers. That did not come without a humongous amount of pressure on the part of many of the groups that have been pushing for this. And it did not come without a great deal of resistance from employers uh, and others, Republicans in many cases, just don't think that, you know, people deserve that much money. Now, I would hope that New York would soon follow suit. It looks as though, and I have to do a little bit of research on this, but Los Angeles, unlike New York, doesn't have to go begging to the state capitol to get this increase. Um, Right now, the minimum wage in New York State 
8.75. The federal minimum wage, 7.25, and it will rise to nine bucks at the end of the year. Uh, about one third of New York City workers and state workers now make below $15 an hour. Um, again, it's crazy to me. First of all, it's crazy to me that New York wasn't in the lead on this. I know there have been a lot of people pushing for it. There have been legislators, elected officials who have been pushing for it. But in Los Angeles, they got it at least, for now, got it done. The city council vote was 14 to 1, which is interesting. They only have 15 city council people against New York's, what, 53, something like that. But that's another discussion for another day. Uh, they say that this uh, opponents, and of course these many small business owners and, of course, other employers, say that Los Angeles will be a wage island, pushing businesses to nearby places where they can pay employees less. I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. I am not buying the notion that people will en masse, even small business owners, relocate en masse so they can pay employees less. How much do people think it's going to cost them to move, in fact? The president of the Valley Industry and Commerce Association, which is a trade group in Southern California, says, and this is a guy named Stuart Waldman, quote, they are asking businesses to put the bill on a social experiment that they would never do on their own employees. It's not true. Absolutely not true. A lot of businesses aren't going to make it, he says. It's great that this is an increase for some employees, but the sad truth is that a lot of employees are going to lose their jobs. It hasn't happened in cities that have raised their minimum wage to $15, like Seattle, for example. Uh, employees uh, didn't lose their jobs in humongous numbers. This is the red flag that opponents to raising the minimum wage typically, and I emphasize the term typically, raise to try and keep employees down. Because believe me, $7.25, $8.75, 9 bucks an hour, people can't live off of that. And the employers, of course, then turn around and argue, well, these are people who are part-time workers, who are in college, et cetera, et cetera. But they never produce any data that says that's, in fact, the case. Um, it's a 67% increase in Los Angeles, and <clears throat> it's going to be phased in over five years. First to $10.50 in July of next year, then to $12, $13.25, and fourteen twenty-five in 2019. And, of course, in 2020, it goes to 15 bucks. Businesses with fewer than 25 employees, those are small businesses people are all concerned about, have an extra year to carry this out. I don't think this is a problem. I really don't. And I think that people who raise this, this whole thing about people are going to lose their jobs, we shall see. We'll see whether or not it turns out to be true. Next, we go from Los Angeles to the city of Waco, Texas. Some of you may know that there was a shootout. Actually, uh, uh, they call it a melee. The, mind you, they don't call it a riot like they called it in Baltimore. Uh, the New York Times headline, mass roundup of bikers in Waco shootout tests limits of court system. And they call it a melee. Nine people died in this so-called melee. Uh, the intelligence unit of the Arizona Department of Public Safety says, out of 32 years working biker cases, this is the biggest one I have seen in the United States. The case will be a challenge for law enforcement 
I'm glad I'm not the investigator. It is huge. Now, based on past experience with bikers, uh, and by the way, they they arrested 170 people who were facing organized crime charges. Most of them uh, had to post bail of a million dollars. That's right, one million dollars. The minutia of this is maybe troubling to contemplate that, uh, you know, these folks apparently, uh, the conflict started between two motorcycle groups, they call them, not gangs, groups, the Banditos and the Cossacks. And this was uh, Sunday at a Twin Peaks restaurant in South Waco. 18 people were wounded in addition to the nine bikers dead. And apparently the dispute was like over respect. And the dispute was paying taxes to the Banditos, which apparently is the largest biker gang in the state of Texas. And of course, you know, you could make the comment that Texas has some of the most lax gun laws in the country. And uh, maybe that contributes to the fact that all of these bikers, including some people that were government workers, I might add, uh, but that these uh, bikers had easy access to the firearms that they used to kill nine people. Other than Freddie Gray, I don't think anybody else in Baltimore ended up dying. And you see that there's all this introspection and all of this scrutiny of Baltimore and the conditions, et cetera, and a lot of that's good. But how about we scrutinize these biker gangs? How about we scrutinize them the way people are being scrutinized in Ferguson, Missouri, and other places across the country? Nine people dead. According to a spokesman for one of the biker groups, a regional coalition of motorcycle clubs, including the Banditos, gathered at that restaurant for a meeting. And motorcyclists showed up from other gangs that were apparently not invited. Next thing you know, there was a disturbance in the parking lot, then a disturbance inside the restaurant. And next thing you know, these clowns are shooting it up over respect. And nobody thinks that's a pathology. Nobody thinks that whether somebody pays dues to somebody else is cause for a riot that kills nine people. Nine people. And they don't think there's anything pathological about these biker gangs. At least two of the men charged work for local governments in Texas. One works for the Public Works Department in Austin. Uh, And there's another suspect who is a drainage maintenance supervisor and has been employed uh, in the city of Killeen, Texas, for 13 years. This is amazing. And, you know, the thing they're crying about is, well, it's clogged the court system. Well, then expand the court system. Do what you have to do, but bring the people that were involved in this to justice. And, you know, don't necessarily charge people wrongly or don't necessarily end up, you know, putting people in some meat grinder justice system. But how about you do this right and you get the people responsible and bring them to justice. Is that too much to ask? I know it's too much to ask to think that Texas is going to start looking at their gun laws and how bikers, this many bikers, ended up with guns. That they're not going to do. It's Texas, after all. They think they're an independent republic. They want to secede from the United States, some of them. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And, oh, 
over trivia, over minutia, over foolishness, nine people lose their lives. There's a Duke University professor who uh, has been roundly criticized for uh, an online comment he put on a piece in the New York Times editorial, how racism doomed Baltimore. See, you go back to Baltimore again. Um, <clears throat> apparently, the professor, who's 80 years old, uh, and his name is Jerry Huff, in his online comments, Huff wrote that Asians have been described as yellow races. And a very Asian Americans, he wrote, quote, they, don't, they didn't feel sorry for themselves, but worked doubly hard. And you know, you know who he's contrasting that with. If you don't, here we go. I am a professor at Duke University. Every Asian student has a very simple old American first name that symbolizes their desire for integration. Virtually every black has a strange new name that symbolizes their lack of desire for integration. I don't know how a guy keeps a job like that. I don't understand that. I mean, a lot of stuff I don't understand. I'm a relatively simple guy. But how you can have a guy as a tenured professor, I'd have put him out to pastor a long time ago if this is how he thinks. But to say that Asian students have normal names and black students don't, and that black students, I guess he's talking about people named Jamal or Muhammad or whatever, that they don't want to assimilate into American culture. He doesn't know that. What he's saying is their parents don't want to assimilate into American culture. And, you know, assimilating into American culture may not be the best thing in the world for everybody anyway. But his inference, actually, he didn't even infer this. He came right out and said it. He said that Asians, of course, perform better on standardized tests. They perform better in college than black students do. And he says they face the same kind of discrimination. Now, you can argue about that. You can quibble about that. But this guy has no business, no business, working for an American university. Least of all, one as prestigious as Duke. A professor in Duke's African-American, African and African-American studies department, Mark Anthony Neal, posted an image of Huff's comments under his blog under the title, Dear Old Duke, The Unchecked Racism of a Tenured Duke Professor. That's absolutely true. And by the way, the Duke administration says his standing as a professor has not changed. The school's faculty handbook gives a professor the right to, quote, act and to speak in his or her capacity as a citizen without institutional censorship or discipline. Okay, I mean, that, that that's cool. But I don't know if, if I were a student, if he calls, if he has classes, I wouldn't mess with him. I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole, as a matter of fact. But, you know, it, it, it's another instance of an individual. This is not necessarily uh, symptomatic of all white people or whatever, because, of course, you know the guy's white. Uh, but, you know, there's a question that needs to be asked about how some people uh, end up... Uh, having certain attitudes about race and certain attitudes about black people, if this is the attitude of the people who are charged with, you know, with educating them. 
Uh, he's 80 years old. I mean, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world if he were put out to pasture quietly by Duke University. Something ought to happen. I mean, I, I'm all for the First Amendment. All for it. Of course, there's also the question of whether uh, an 80-year-old tenured professor at Duke ought to have better sense than to post this in an online comment in the first place. You know, if that's what you really think, keep it to yourself. You ain't got to share that with anybody. And, you know, and then he tops it off by doubling down and essentially saying, hey, you know what? This is what I feel. And to say, and by the way, he has degrees from Harvard University, including a doctorate. He's written a dozen books about Russia and the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it's, it's just, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. It's 18 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. We have a guest that will be coming up shortly, hopefully, because we're going to talk about another story. The story has uh, uh, gotten a lot of play in <clears throat> the media here today, as a matter of fact. And it has to do with uh, an edict, apparently, from the NYPD brass. And they say that narcotics cops should not arrest anybody, any dealers, over the age of 40. I don't know why they pick 40. It sounds pretty arbitrary to me. But we have a guest who is joining us on our phone line. And it's a pleasure to have him with us because he knows the law. He knows policing because he's an ex-cop. And he's currently a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice right here in New York. Let's say good evening to Professor Eugene O'Donnell. Professor, how you doing? Hey, Mark. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Of course. Um, when you heard the story, what did you think? I think they're going in the right direction, which is to say uh, there's limited resources, prosecutor and police resources. They're trying to go after violence. I think everybody knows a lot of the drug enforcement has been kind of futile. So their sense of this is that people uh, really 35 and below are the people you got to worry about in terms of guns, which is the thing that takes people's lives, obviously. And there's a lot of, sadly, a lot of people sort of on a treadmill that are have narcotics issues, minor crime issues that are 40, 50 years of age. We all know people like that. They're not going to get off that treadmill. They're not really a threat to other people. And uh, we need to separate people that really are a threat to the, to, the, to the safety of others from kind of more more sad than bad type people. But, Professor, aren't uh, some of the drug kingpins, the people that are moving all this? We just saw a huge bust up in the Bronx, a uh, heroin operation that apparently had enough dope to uh, anesthetize the entire population of New York City. Are people sure that some of those kingpins aren't over the age of 40? No, they're not. And, I mean, there are definitely older people carrying weapons also. But I think in this narrow sense, uh, there, there's been a spike in shootings. And I think they've identified that most of those shootings involve young people carrying guns and being shot. So they're not going to do a dragnet approach. They're going to do what they're trying to do is a, a more targeted approach against people that they believe, you know, are, are, are represent a violent threat more than a drug threat. Now, are, what will they do if they find, if they bust a dealer who's 45? What, what, what happens to that person? Well, they're actually making it hard. They're actually making them write uh, reports uh, explaining why uh, they had to do it. So it's still a crime. They'll still be processed. But 
apparently if you're a police person and you make more than a couple of these arrests, you're going to be under the gun. People are going to want to know why you're making these arrests. Again, it, 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 it's not a science. It's probably very inexact, but uh, we need to focus on violence and people hurting other people. And some of the stuff with, you know, even if you look at a Freddie Gray type situation, this is a guy whose life is basically stuck in a bad place, not really a threat to anybody. And, uh, you know, I think the police need to focus on those, particularly carrying guns, especially since there has been a spike in shootings. And there are some people in the city of New York who feel quite unsafe uh, where they live still. Absolutely. Our guest is Professor Eugene O'Donnell from John Jay College. Professor, have you been able to get a, a feel for what rank-and-file cops and how they're reacting to this? Well, I think, you know, they're quasi-military, so you tell them what to do, they do it, more or less. And uh, I, I think it's a, a little bit of a myth that the cops buy into the status quo. They're, they'll roll with the punches. You tell them what to do, they'll go out and do it. If you incentivize making good arrests, they'll make good arrests. If you, you know, There's a lot of arrests that are made that are sort of not that good. They're not going to go anywhere. DAs aren't going to write them up and prosecute them. So let's go after the the people we want to go after that we think are a threat to society. You know, with the Garner case, guys selling loose cigarettes. You know, that really should be a priority for the police mm -hmm. in this day and age. Uh, again, you know, Mark, as you your your ears on the ground, these things aren't as easy as they sound because the community gets upset. They don't community doesn't like to see stuff, criminal stuff, even minor criminal stuff sometimes. So you got to balance that. But they're trying to take more of a data-driven, hard evidence-driven approach rather than just running a dragnet through the city. And uh, even then, it's still hard to come up with a gun, even when you focus on young people. Very true. Professor, you know, it's interesting to bring up how the community feels on this. Because it's been my sense that there is a segment of the community that wants to see the police crack down, even on low-level offenses, the so-called broken windows thing. Uh, but then, of course, there is a very large and, and loud uh, advocacy community that says that this is not the proper way to police. Uh, how do you reconcile those two uh, seemingly polar opposite views? It's really hard. I'll tell you what, though. The New York City Council deserves some credit here. They, they've been uh, beat up a lot down through the years. Now this idea that they're, that they're using about civil enforcement of a lot of this stuff makes a tremendous amount of sense. We need to have non-custodial kinds of ways to bring people to, to court. You don't drag them in. You don't handcuff them. You don't make it adversarial. Somebody makes a violation, you can identify them. You may be able to use a, 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 a computer technology on the scene. You identify these people. You send them to civil court. And, you, and really, Mark, what you do is you create a sliding scale, everything from basically yelling at people or correcting people to something minor civil, more serious, more criminal than with incarceration really being reserved for the worst kind of people or re repetitive people. So you still have the ability to bring people to bear. But, you know, some people are embarrassed by their first offense, and we don't need to really make it worse than it needs to be to get the point across. So the city council deserves credit because they're trying to divert this, not look the other way. It also professionalizes the cops. The last thing the cops need to be doing is wrestling around on the ground with people, uh, especially over minor offenses. they got a lot of other things they could be out there doing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Professor, uh, you know, if you look at this, I guess, through a particular lens, you see the idea that, that yeah, uh, a lot of younger people are the ones running around carrying guns, but it's almost as if, uh, I, I think from some perspective, 
you're giving the, the, the older lawbreakers more or less a, a, a free pass. Can't you stratify it by you know, degree of offense, or is that what they're doing? Yeah, I think that's true. I think, I mean, the truth is, though, we got we have people, not so much in New York, because New York's changed, but you know, see it in other cities. I mean, we still have it in New York. The people that have sort of dead-ended in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, um, the employment is not really an issue for them. Uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of mental health issues out there, a lot of people self-medicating, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't really have a plan, affirmative plan for them. But I think it's been pretty horrible to be using jail, uh, overusing jail, and locking those people up. But, I, again, I think it's real important to listen to the community and not what people tell you, what people are saying in the community, what people actually are saying in the community, because you do have to give people what they want. Certainly, you know, um, if you stood on 57th Street and 5th Avenue in Manhattan with an open beer, that wouldn't last very long. Midtown North would be all over you uh, because the people who live there wouldn't tolerate that. So if that's what people in the outer boroughs want, that's what they demand, you got to. You also got to give them a city that's equitable. I mean, there are things that aren't tolerated in Midtown on million-dollar condo streets. And if people in the outer bars are saying we don't want that either, that has to be respected. Also, public housing that has to be respected. Also, they, you know, there's doormen in these buildings. I mean, public housing residents want to know who's in their buildings by and large. They don't want people in the stairwell smoking pot, drinking beer, and you know they have a right to that. Professor, will this have the effect of blurring the lines between people who are possessing drugs, whether they be hard or soft, and people who are dealing the same drugs? Yeah, I mean, that line's already blurred because a lot of the so-called dealers, are a lot of them are users, and a lot of, there's a lot of little low-level drug dealing going on. It's the, the rare case that we saw by the, you know, that, that major bust that they just did. Mostly, it's mostly churning. You're arresting people, you're... Tr- the DA sit around trying to figure out what to do to them, and then they're out before you know it, and it's mostly churning. But again, it, it may be like a lot of things in our system that uh, the status quo is terrible, but we can't figure out something better. Uh, you know, again, there's a lot of people talking about drug legalization. A lot of elites talk about drug legalization. Uh, I don't know how they feel, and, and, and you know, and I'm sort of down with that also. But people have children, having people even selling pot in the schoolyard. Uh, selling meth, uh, you know, selling Xanax, uh, prescription drug abuse is a major issue. So in theory, there's an elite that says that's okay, but sell that in the neighborhood. Tell people in the neighborhood the police are going to, you know, stand down or we're going to allow drug abuse, and that's not such an easy sell often. Mm-hmm. Professor, um, will narcotics police now have to estimate the age of a, they're doing a buy and bust. If they're, if they're buying from street dealers or, or even from higher ups than that, do they now have to estimate a person's age? I don't think it's going to go that far. I think, you know, common sense will prevail. I don't think it's, you know, oh, the guy's 40 years old. It's his 40th birthday. We've got to release him now. I don't think it's going to go that far. They're simply saying, look, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of narcotics enforcement that's been dubious and, you know, marijuana enforcement. Um, it, you know, but if, if you've got real dealers, you've got youngsters, uh, you've got uh, turf uh, battles, you've got people that are armed, try to focus on that. Try to take the resources and focus on that. It's often the low-hanging fruit that law enforcement has focused on, the easy stuff. And this is why we don't get a lot of the dealers, because it takes an awful long time investment to get the kingpins, I think most of us would agree that's where we should be directing our attention to get the big guys, not the, you know, not, there's a lot of really sad situations where people are just using 
and and it's quite obvious they're using because they have either a diagnosed or undiagnosed mental illness, and you're handcuffing them, driving them around in a van, throwing them into a jail system that's already overwhelmed. So you know, city super safe at this point. Targeted smart enforcement is the way to go going forward. It looks as though there was some targeted smart enforcement going on in the Bronx. They seized 155 pounds of heroin. Uh, And according to the special narcotics prosecutor, Bridget Brennan, uh, this is enough to supply a dose of heroin for each and every New York City resident, man, woman and child. And this was apparently going on uh, like up in Riverdale, up close to uh, Fieldston. Uh, Major bust, huh? Major bust. And once again, the enemy is ourselves. You know, everybody's uh, say, you know, where does this heroin go? Nobody seems to know anybody who admits to being a user, but that stuff goes pretty quickly when it hits the street. So we're sort of declaring war on each other in a way on this. Uh, what can you say? It, it, it just it, it may just be that's the best we can do, at least for now, is a holding pattern, try to make some you know major cases against people, flip people. Uh, but that's a very costly, you know, thing when you're using wiretaps and you're using, uh, you know, year, two-year-long investigations, extremely labor-intensive. And, you know, we got terrorism. we got all these other issues floating around the country. So you're trying to make smart choices about how to use the resources that you, that you have. And that are limited. Look at NYPD. It's just shrinking with each passing day. It's getting to be a smaller and smaller agency. Very few cops out there on the street these days. Yeah, yeah, very true. And, I mean, it seems as though... Uh, the people in the neighborhood around this place, which is like around uh, 251st Street, uh, they kind of didn't know that this was going on right under their noses, huh? Yeah, it's, well, it's amazing what goes on in the city. Uh, you know, the one thing we could say, anybody who wants to be a New York City cop, is you will never, ever not be surprised. There's there's amazing things that go on behind closed doors. And uh, pretty much in New York City, think about anything outrageous that's going on. So whatever it is. You know, the, the things you can't even make up, you'll you'll see things as a police person that no fiction writer can come up with and uh, often uh, right under the under people's noses. Uh, it's going on, you know, almost plain, almost they're almost hiding in plain sight. Professor Eugene O'Donnell, as always, a privilege to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Mark Riley Show. Great to talk to you uh, and the Mark Riley Show. All right. You take care. Have a good one. OK, Mark. Bye bye. 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock, that was Professor Eugene O'Donnell. He is a professor at John Jay College and an extremely knowledgeable person uh, about policing, about drugs, as you just heard. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we'll talk more about this uh, big heroin bust, but in a somewhat different context. Is heroin use, which apparently is skyrocketing in the suburbs, is it treated as a sickness in the suburbs as opposed to the traditional uh, view that it's a pathology, which many people, I think, felt was the way people looked at heroin use during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more of The Mark Riley Show.
27 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. You know, it's interesting uh, when it comes to heroin. And, I mean, uh, there are an awful lot of other drugs, I think, that you could classify in this fashion, certainly in modern American history. Going back to marijuana, by the way, the 1930s. Um, I was in a meeting last night uh, at uh, my daughter's high school, which shall remain nameless. But there were two police officers, one a lieutenant, one a detective, and they were talking about heroin and, you know, counseling parents on how to spot the signs, et cetera, et cetera. Because as it turns out, the number of heroin deaths by overdose in uh, northern New Jersey has doubled from last year going into this year. And the only thing that's mitigated that is that police now have what's called Narcan, which allows them to revive people who might otherwise have died. But the thing that struck me during the course of this presentation, which lasted a good stretch, almost an hour, was that there was never the word junkie used to describe these heroin users. And these are young young people. I mean, they, they were talking about people who were deceased 19, 20, 21, 22 years old. And I just reflected, because I was probably older than most of the parents who were there, how people described heroin use back when it was confined to the so-called inner city, when the users and the dealers were in the inner city. In North Jersey now, Patterson has been identified as the major heroin marketplace. So you got suburban kids going into Patterson, buying and coming back and using. And in many cases, not being aware of the quality of the drug uh, and, and not being as familiar, perhaps, as people were back in the day. Although a lot of people died of overdoses back in the day, too. These kids are dying in alarming numbers. And it, it just struck me that on some level, people don't look at heroin and heroin abuse and addiction the same way in the suburbs that they do in the inner city. And I, there's, you know, obviously times change, people's attitudes change, and, and, and that's all well and good. And I'm not saying that calling heroin abusers victims or, or people who are sick is the wrong thing to do. I just find it amazing that before, going back decades, very few people looked at heroin abusers in the same way. They were junkies. They were dope fiends. They were this. They were that. And, and a lot of that had to do with the havoc that they brought to local communities in New York City, in Newark, and in, in other places, all up and down the East Coast and actually across the country. And, they're, you know, on a certain level, that's understandable. But I just found it fascinating that people's attitudes, when it's their kids, seems to change. And, and, and that does not mean that you negate the tragedy of young people in the suburbs, in the inner city, or anywhere else dying of heroin abuse, dying of a heroin overdose. Nobody wants to minimize that. It's just interesting how times change. And it's interesting to me, anyway, how attitudes change. Last week, we talked about that very tragic derailment of an Amtrak train in Philadelphia. Uh, eight people died, I believe it was eight. Uh, many more injured. 
some of them critical. I don't know whether anyone else has passed. God willing, no one else did. But I made the point at the time, a twofold point at the time. One, part of this problem is the decrepit infrastructure on the Northeast Corridor from Boston to Washington, D.C. The infrastructure is amazingly bad. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Congress has starved Amtrak. As a matter of fact, I think it was either the same day or the day after that tragedy, the House of Representatives, in their finite wisdom, chose to vote to cut $260 million in funding to Amtrak. Now, I don't know if they think that money wouldn't have been well spent or whatever, but today in the New York Times, headline, low U.S. rail spending leads to poor safety experts say. And let me just read you the first paragraph from the New York Times. Across Europe and East Asia, hundreds of millions of train passengers a year are routinely whisked at speeds that often exceed 200 miles an hour over extensive rail networks that, for many, present a more reliable and affordable long-distance alternative than even air travel. So the fatal derailment of an Amtrak train last week in Philadelphia that was traveling at half that speed surprised many outside North America, where railway accidents have declined steadily to levels that now rival those of the world's safest airlines. Now, that's at the same time fascinating and troubling to me. I mean, I know about bullet train in Japan, which has been they've been operating a bullet train for five decades. France, China, all of these places have trains that can do 200 miles an hour and probably could have taken that curve, of course, if, if the track was proper and the signals were proper, etc. could have taken that curve or a similar curve where they are at a much higher speed than 106 miles an hour, which is what they quoted that Amtrak train that derailed as traveling. And, you know, there's a, you don't want to just sit back and point the finger of blame on people. But I got to tell you, there's a very, very troubling uh, lack of interest, it appears, in strengthening rail infrastructure and in seeing to it that these tracks are properly maintained. Never mind trying to upgrade them so they could, so, you know, an average train could do 150 miles an hour. In fact, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to pull this up from the New York Times article because it's, it's interesting. Uh, per capita, the United States comes up short. In 2011, the most recent year for which comparative, comparative statistics are available, the United States spent roughly $35 per person on all rail infrastructure. And many other countries, and I mean many other countries, Japan, more than $100 per person. 28 member countries of the European Union, similar amounts of money. Japan's uh, Shinkansen bullet train network has never experienced the fatal crash or derailment in 51 years of operation. And the fact of the matter is, you got to ask yourself, how in the world is it that in America, you know, the most advanced nation on, on the planet, how come America can't do better? And the answer, unfortunately, is our politicians don't want to do better. 
you know, Chris Christie had, and, and I would say maybe that gateway project that was going to put a tunnel, an extra tunnel under the uh, Hudson River between New York and New Jersey, maybe that wasn't the most brilliant plan in the world. Because from what I understand, it wouldn't have necessarily even linked up with Penn Station. However, when Chris Christie decided he wasn't going to you know, spend the money because he was afraid to cause it, he didn't come up with any plan that might have spent the money more efficiently or might have, have cost less because it was going into a, an existing rail hub. He didn't do any of that. All he did was say no. And, you know, you, you got to ask yourself, at what point do we say, okay, we really need to spend some money in beefing up our rail infrastructure. Is it too much to ask for trains to be able to travel at 106 miles an hour on average from Boston to Washington? Because they're not now. Anybody that's ridden on a train between those two cities will tell you. You don't travel at anywhere near that speed. And yet, in America, we think that's normal. John Boehner, when asked about railway funding, dismissed the question as stupid. And the bottom line is, and this is according to the New York Times, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Now, that's not in terms of the loss of life in connection with the derailment. It's not about getting what you pay for that way. It is, however, I would think, a situation where there are politicians in Congress who represent areas that don't have a lot of rail infrastructure, very little, if any. That's, to them, a relic of a bygone era. But the bottom line is these folks don't want to spend a dime servicing the Boston to Washington quarter. They don't. They have no interest in it whatsoever. And they'll wring their hands and talk about how tragic it was that eight people died but they will not spend even a fraction of the money to bring the existing rail structure, infrastructure up to speed, for God's sake. They just won't do it. Because as far as they're concerned, that's somebody else's problem. It's not America's problem. Even though you're talking about the Congress of the United States, and they represent the entire United States, it's just not, not happening. And it's sad. Now, at the same time, the House of Representatives yesterday approved a two-month extension of funding for transportation projects. But that's mainly highway stuff. The extension was passed in a 387 to 35 vote with one member voting present. It maintains funding for the Highway Trust Fund through July 31st. So now it goes on to the Senate, which, you know, if, if they don't take it up fast, that two-month extension will be done. Now... On the one hand, you have to ask yourself, why do they keep doing these short-term fixes? Why do they put a Band-Aid on an open wound? Now, you know, a lot of people travel by highway in this country, and I'm in no way saying that it should be a highway versus mass transit situation. But a two-month extension... In the, in the cold, hard light of day, to me anyway, that means nothing. Now, they're tr trying to figure out how to pay for this stuff. And the last plan 
that they had expired five years ago, six years ago. The gasoline and diesel taxes that provide most of the financing haven't been increased since 1993. And that makes it even worse because Americans are buying more fuel-efficient cars and they're buying less gas than they once did. Yet lawmakers in both parties and the president of the United States have declined to endorse raising the fuel tax. So they got to find another way to come up with the money. And, of course, you know, the fight over financing generally, because, you know, Congress is getting ready to get out of Dodge in case you hadn't don't realize that they have their little Memorial Day holiday, which may start tomorrow and may last through the end of next week. Because, you know, it's it's not just one day. These people take their time, and they take their time off. But, you know, there are debates over trade and government surveillance and this and that and the other. And apparently, Transportation Secretary Anthony Fox says this extension would be the 33rd short-term extension in recent years. 33rd short-term extension. How do do you do that? How in the world do you do that? And, of course, you know, the Democrats would like a longer fix, but they're not the majority in Congress anymore. So they can't get a longer fix done, not certainly by the Memorial Day uh, recess. They just don't. Now, they want to, the Republicans, who love to cobble, it seems, when it comes to spending bills, they want to talk about a long-term highway bill in connection with tax reform. Now, hey, they can reform taxes, but it's, it's, why do you have to do both? Just like they tied up Loretta Lynch over immigration and then something else and then something else and then something else. So she had to wait forever. It's crazy. Crazy. Now, Senator John Thune of South Dakota, the Senate has yet to take this thing up. He's the chairman of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation. He says he wants a multi-year highway bill, and he raised the possibility of funding it while extending a series of business tax breaks that are renewed annually. They're called tax extenders. How in the world do you talk about funding at the same time you're giving people tax breaks? How else do you expect to fund any of this stuff? It's, it's, I think it's really kind of sort of uh, uh, a comment or a commentary on how the American Congress acts and how the American Congress does not seem to be able to get its act together to do what they're sent there to do. This is what they're supposed to do. You know, appropriate money decide where the money needs to go, these sorts of things. And it always gets into these petty squabbles and petty fights and people trying to attach this thing or that thing. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they haven't tried to attach immigration to any of this stuff. That's how our con- That's where our tax dollars are going, folks. Closer to home, the New York metropolitan area. The MTA is going to... Uh, tweak the train system to try and keep those crunching delays and overcrowded cars so you can't even get in them to a minimum. So uh, newly released MTA data apparently shows that 10 of the city's 20 lines 
are packed to capacity at their peak times. Now, this would seem to be a no-brainer, all right? If your existing system is packed, is at capacity, you've got to add capacity. That would mean more trains. But apparently, they can't do that. They say most trains are running, uh, most trains running that the current infrastructure can accommodate. So without major overhauls, all they can do is fiddle. All they can do is tweak on the margins. Now, apparently, upgrading the signal system, which in some cases is ancient, is not in the cards because Governor Cuomo doesn't seem to want to do it. So barring that, uh, and, and by the way, subway, subway ridership is higher at every hour of the day than it was in 2008. And in addition to the 10 lines with all the trains carrying all the people they can, that would include the 2, the 3, the 4, the 5, the 6, the 7, the E, the L, the N, and the Q, another 5 have all the trains running on them that they can. What they can? Apparently, according to the MTA, the only lines that have some wiggle room as far as capacity is concerned include the 1, the B, the D, the G, and the J and Z. I don't see the C train in here anywhere. I wouldn't think the C train would be at capacity at this point. And, of course, they run some of the oldest trains in the system on the C line. That's another discussion for another day. Now, I had read about a week ago when they first started talking about these tweaks that among them would be holding trains at stations for longer periods of time. I've seen how that works, and it doesn't. Because the longer you hold trains in a station, particularly during the rush hour, the more crowded they get. You see people cascading down staircases and jumping on already crowded trains. It happens all the time. So, you know, uh, what they're talking about is prioritizing the spacing of trains, which means de-emphasizing the focus on on-time performance. It's also uh, targeting the 6, 7, and F lines for tweaks, including more step-aside markings on platforms and shorter train announcements to decrease the time trains spend in the station. On those three lines, the agency is also ramping up rail testing and repairs and is moving its signal staff along the 6 line in Manhattan. See, this is all, you know, it's just like Congress. It is, in fact, a short-term fix to a long-term problem. You've got to get more train capacity. I can't believe at this point that the trains are not running at the same, or, or are running at the same level they were 10, 15 years ago. When this kind of capacity, obviously fewer people were riding the trains then, but it boggles the mind that the best they can come up with are tweaks to the system to pray that that works for people. Because right now, what they're doing ain't working. Too many trains that are too crowded. And I, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I waited for a number one train at 59th Street and couldn't get on three consecutive trains that pulled into the 59th Street station. They were just too crowded. And I could have bowled my way in, but that's not my way. That's not my persona. 
I like to wait until there's at least a space I think I can get in rather than trying to bully some poor person who's standing close to the doors and then they get scrunched up with somebody else. We'll see. We'll see. I, my thing is, I really believe that the New York City transit system should be taken out of the hands of the MTA. The MTA is a state agency. Let the MTA deal with the rest of the state, with, with rail lines or whatever else. But let New York City Transit be a separate entity run by New York City people for the benefit of New York City people. Of course, it's not going to happen, but hey, you know. Uh, you know, the more things change, I was talking about that guy from Duke University and Asian students and black students and Asians have good American names and black people don't. Well, I don't know how many of you use Google Maps, but apparently anyone that was surfing Google Maps who types in the racist slur N-word house will automatically be directed to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That would be ordinarily known as the White House. According to a spokeswoman from Google, quote, some inappropriate results are surfacing in Google, Google Maps that should not be, and we apologize for any offense this may have caused, but as of today, the glitch was still occurring. Now, they don't know who did it. They don't know if it was a Google employee or a Google bomb, which occurs when users flood a website with a particular keyword, and it tricks Google's algorithms into making an error. Algorithms make errors. I didn't think they did that. But social media, of course, which is where all these things are decided, social media has become the new court of public opinion, it appears. Uh, people are just really, like, really upset about this. And, well, they should be. And you know what it is? It's just more Obama-hating. That's all it is, no matter who did it, whether it was a Google employee or JoJo the dog-faced boy. It's another way to denigrate the president of the United States. He and the first lady have gone through pure D hell since the, since the president took office. It's not to say I agree with everything he does, because I don't. But the fact of the matter is, this man has been pilloried in racist ways since the day he was inaugurated. Now, what, six years ago? Almost seven years ago. And it doesn't seem as though People, actually six years ago, it uh, doesn't seem like people really, you know, it was just kind of sort of the cost of being president or something. It's ugly. It's racist. And the people that thought it up ought to know better. At least I would think they ought to know better. Our final story today, because I'm kind of not doing to the ridiculous, although this is just a little ridiculous. Um, you heard about the banks? You know, <laughs> It's almost like a joke now. Six banks who uh, worked together in secret to control currency prices for six years. And, of course, they lined their pockets when they did it. Now they have to pay eight, I'm sorry, $5.8 billion in fines. Citicorp, J.P. Morgan Chase, Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland all agreed to plead guilty to conspiring to manipulate the price of U.S. dollars and euros and settlements with the Justice Department announced in Washington. Now, just on account of they pleaded guilty, that does not mean, oh, and by the way, the main banking unit of UBS Group AG agreed to plead guilty to charges related to interest rate manipulation. 
So they all pled guilty. You think any of them are going to jail, party people? $5.8 billion is the cost of keeping your behind out of the who's gal. And they'll all, you know, I saw the other day Jamie Dimon, uh, and, and you know, everybody's really upset. Only 60% apparently of their shareholders or whoever agreed with his pay package. And Jamie Dimon's pay package will not go down one nickel because Citibank agreed and copped to this. These folks have been figuring out ways to manipulate the American banking system. And this is what Elizabeth Warren's been talking about, by the way. She's the one that's, uh, and she's not the only one, but she's the one that's been crying out in the darkness to say, hey, you know what? These banks need to be better regulated. Uh, better regulated would be Glass-Steagall, but of course we don't have that anymore. Glass-Steagall separated banking, which are what banks are supposed to be in business for, from some of the other crap that they've created to line their pockets. And, you know, interest rate manipulation, currency rigging, all of this stuff. These are crazy. And believe me, if they made 5.8, if they're paying out $5.8 billion, you can imagine, just imagine how much money they actually ended up making. I don't really want to speculate on that right now because I hear music in the background, which means it's time for me to go. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld at the controls, as always, in a stellar fashion. Stay tuned for all the great programming on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. We will join you next Wednesday. God willing, in the creek don't rise. For the Mark Riley Show, I'm Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.